Hello, everybody. Hello, wow. You're here. It's good. Um, as you know, this is my first time ever preaching on a Sunday morning. Sunday afternoon. Let's try that again. <laughs> um, for those of you that don't know who I am, my name is Josh. I am on the team here at C3. I head up all things media, and that means making pretty pictures on the screens. Look at that. Isn't that pretty? And making nice videos and things like that. That is my job. So, you know who I am. I'm married to Katie. She's on the front row. She's amazing. And, yeah, yeah hang on. Don't clap too much. <laughs> and we are just about to buy our very first house. We have had... A mortgage appointment and everything, so we're proper, proper adults now. I don't know about you, but I've been loving this series. We've been looking at the book of Psalms, and we started off by looking at a video by Bono and Eugene Peterson, and I don't know what you think about the message version of the Bible, but I've always kind of subconsciously put it down in my mind, and then I saw Eugene Peterson on the screen, and I thought, this guy knows his stuff. He's a scholarly guy. He knows what he's talking about. He's clearly sought God for this version of the Bible. Yet it's not a direct translation. It's a paraphrase, but it's amazing. So that's really inspired me for today. So if you don't have one of these books, this is the book of Psalms, just the message version. Grab one. There should be some still around. And so today, my main readings are all going to come from the message version of the Bible. So let's start with the reading of the Bible. Psalm 51, verse 1 to 4. Generous in love, God give grace. Huge in mercy, wipe out my bad record. Scrub away my guilt. Soak out my sins in your laundry. I know how bad I've been. My sins are staring me down. You're the one I've violated, and you've seen it all. Seen the full extent of my evil. You have all the facts before you. Whatever you decide about me is fair. To understand some of the emotions of this psalm, you're going to be needing some context. David is one of my favorite Bible characters. I used to remember reading Psalm, psalm Samuel 1 and 2 regularly as a kid. David, I mean, can you beat David? Other than Jesus, can you beat David? I don't know. He's a pretty amazing Bible character. He did some really cool things. He killed a lion, he killed a bear, and that's before he even became king or did anything fancy. He killed a massive giant. Um, Katie did a preach recently and had to look up how tall Goliath was, and he was, he was seriously tall. He was like double my height. I'm six foot one, so that's pretty tall. Um, he killed him with a little pebble, basically, <laughs> a little stone, and how amazing is that? All because he had the power of God. He had the mighty men which I reckon, if you hear stories about them, they, they killed hundreds of people in battle. They'd, they'd basically have to be like the X-Men to be existence in today, wouldn't they? And not only that, he was just a hero. But having said all that, David messed up. And David messed up royally. He was the king over all of Israel. And I can imagine him. He's standing on his roof in his palace, probably this amazing glitzy thing, and he's looking out and he sees a woman. 
She's bathing on the roof, which means she's naked. And he sees her and he says, I want her. She's married, he's married, something's not right there. Anyway, next thing we know, she's pregnant. Something didn't go right there. David seems to show zero remorse. And the next thing he does is call Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, back from the war. He brings him into his palace. He says to him, go home to your wife, see her. Because what's David trying to do? He's trying to cover up for his mistakes. He's trying to make it seem like Uriah got Bathsheba pregnant. But it doesn't work. So he tries again. He gets Uriah drunk. He tries all these things. But it doesn't work because Uriah has too much honor. He refuses to go home and he stays in the city gates because he knows that his friends, his companions, his comrades are at the battlefield. They're staying in horrible tents. They're staying in horrible conditions. So he has too much honor and he won't go home. He doesn't see his wife. David is not a happy man. So he decides, this is what I'm going to do. He gets Uriah and he gives him a message to send to Joab, the general of the army. And he says, Uriah needs to be put at the front of the fighting where it's most fierce. Guess what happens? Uriah dies. So now David is not only an adulterer, he's a murderer as well. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine feeling like that? That would be horrific. And in all this, God knew what David was doing. God knew David. David tries somehow to make this better and he marries Bathsheba. But God is not happy. It took until Nathan, the prophet in the Old Testament, said something to David. In 2 Samuel 12, verse 1 to 7, he tells this story to David. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Don't you think it's crazy how we can go through our life, our entire lives, and not realize that we've messed up? We can go through life not realize that we've sinned. David sinned. He did something so horrific that it affected him for the rest of his life. Today I'm going to talk about three things that I believe are important keys from this psalm. Point number one, God knows you. We cannot approach this psalm without knowing a few things about God. He loves you. 
The start of the psalm so clearly starts with this. Have mercy on me according to your unfailing love. God loves you. That's not an abstract concept or a meaningless phrase. God loves you. Probably the most famous verse in the entire Bible is, anyone reckon they know? John 3.16. Correct. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The fact that that is the most famous verse in the Bible could mean absolutely nothing. Or it could be a real moment to define the character and the heart and who God is. I'd go with that. 1 John 4 verse 8 says, Whoever does not love God, whoever does not love, does not know God, because God is love. Everybody wants to be known. No matter what situation you're in, even if you came to church today wanting to remain completely anonymous, wanting to stay in the back, hidden in the dark corners, and just nip in, nip out, everybody wants to be known. I can't think of a single situation in life where you don't want to be known by a loved one, by family, by friends, by someone. You want to be known. I can remember clearly being about four or five years old. We were in Bilth Wells in Wales. And we'd go every year for a few years to this Bible camp, which is basically a load of Christians in a field, in caravans and tents, singing songs in other tents and things like that, and learning about Jesus. It's a pretty simple idea. We still do it today. It's called the One Event, which you should book into if you haven't, by the way. And I was probably four or five years old, and Dad was always involved in the worship. And we were were off to the kids' ministry. I went with my sister, Becky, who is two years younger than me, and my cousin, Jess, who is 13 days older than me, not two weeks. We were there, I can remember clearly as anything, kind of near the back, which is not like what I'd be today. And we were all together, and I felt safe, I felt secure. And then they went out for an appeal. How dare they (laughs) go up for an appeal and respond to Jesus. I all of a sudden was scared. I didn't want to leave their side because I knew them, and they made me feel safe and secure, and I didn't have any fear. And they left me. I know it's sad. Everybody wants to be known. You could be here today and you could have walked in wanting to remain anonymous. But even the person that wants to remain completely anonymous still wants to be known. If you walked in here today and you sat over there and your best friend in the entire world was sat over here, you knew them like better than anyone else. You loved them, you felt safe around them, you could tell them anything, they were just the best person you knew. You wouldn't hide over there unless you'd really upset them or something like that. You'd go and you'd sit next to them because you'd feel, oh, I'm safe, I'm known, I'm able to meet other people because they're with me and I feel, oh, I feel like a warm hug. But do you know what? I believe that we can do that even if we walk in here on our own because we're never on our own 
Because there's someone who's here who is our best friend. All we have to do is acknowledge it. His name is Jesus. He is here the whole time. He never leaves us. He never leaves our side. He is with us wherever we go. Jesus wants us to reach out to him. He's right here all the time. When you're at work and you're in an awkward conversation, you're thinking, I don't like this office gossip. If I join in, then yeah, I'll be seen as popular or I'll be seen as part of the crew, part of the gang, but it doesn't line up with my beliefs. Jesus is there with you. Or if you're on your own, you've got no friends, you've got no family, you've got no one. It's a load of rubbish. Jesus is there. He wants to know you. He loves you. He went so far as to die for you and come back to life because he wants you to know him and he knows you. We know that Jesus is not only our friend, he's not only our saviour, but he's powerful. And he's alive, and he's acting, and he's moving today. He is all-powerful. Through him, the whole world, everything we know was created. My orange shoes exist because Jesus... I had to get them in somewhere. Jesus is awesome. Point number two. Heart is key. Emotions and how they play with our perception of our heart are either a positive or a negative. God creates us with emotions. We need to learn how to control them and how to use them for good. The Bible has loads to say about the importance of heart. It comes up over and over and over and over and over and over again. And here's a little example of that. Proverbs 4 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Proverbs 28 says, Blessed is the man who always fears the Lord, but he who hardens his heart falls into trouble. Luke 6 verse 45 says, The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. Heart is key. Romans 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. That's, that's the key, seriously, that's amazing. Proverbs 17 says, A cheerful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit saps a person's strength. Are you getting it? Are you getting the picture? Heart is key. Your heart and your condition of your heart is essential. David was described as a man after God's own heart. And this was before he had even done anything. He'd been in the field tending the sheep he'd killed a lion he killed a bear eh, doesn't really mean anything David was so awesome that was just easy David clearly saw the value of heart in verse 10 of Psalm 51 it says create in me a pure heart O God and renew a steadfast spirit within me you have to realize 
This psalm is written by a man who knows he's done wrong. He knows he's gone against the will of God and he's messed up. This psalm is desperate. Just look at the words within the psalm. The message version says, scrub away my sins. Scrub away my sins. It's not like they're nice little sins that you just flick off. You have to scrub away your sins. I know how bad I've been. You are right in your verdict, he says to God. This is where it gets real. David faces many things because of his actions. He loses his newborn son. Can you imagine losing your son? I don't even have kids yet, but I could not imagine losing a son. It's one thing to go through the realisation that you've tragically let God down. You've become an adulterer, you've become a murderer, and I can't imagine what that would feel like, let alone anything else. And then you think, the one good thing that's come out of this is that I've got a son. Your son is born and your son dies. How would that feel? That would be hard. And then, not only that, Nathan, who we heard about earlier, the prophet, he had said that there was going to be consequences to David's sin. One of those consequences was Absalom, David's other son. He starts acting up. And it's not like throwing a stone through a window or leaving litter or anything like that. Absalom rapes 10 of David's concubines. How? I mean, he wasn't a nice person. So you have to understand that in those days, David didn't just have one wife. He had eight wives. And that's what we know. And many concubines. And Absalom raped 10 of these concubines when David was out of town. David must have been furious, but what could he do? He knew it was his own fault, but yet David doesn't give up. And in this psalm he says, God, you are right in your verdict, justified in your judgment. He trusts God no matter what. He knows he's not worthy. Here's a funny thing. This year in May, me and Katie, we went to Kenya um, we were excited because Katie is from half of from Tanzania. It's right next door, and we've never we've never been to Africa together before, and it was really exciting. And we went with the amazing organisation of Compassion. Compassion are an organisation that are worldwide, and they they rescue children through sponsorship. It's amazing. We loved it, but it wasn't easy. It was hard. We were in Nairobi, right in the middle of Kenya, right in the main city. And uh, we went into some slums. And on the second day we were there, we went into this slum. slum. And uh, you're driving in, and on the right-hand side, you've got rubbish everywhere because the toilets are too expensive for people to pay for. So they just put their, whatever they need to do, their business in a bag, and they throw it on the rubbish heap. And then we're driving in, and we get to this church... And there's kids there, and there's lines of kids queuing up for food, and they have to literally turn some kids away because they're not part of the Compassion Project. And it's not because they're heartless, it's not because they're callous, it's because there's so many kids, if they didn't if they didn't do that, then some some kid wouldn't get food. And it was it was really heartbreaking to see. And we're in there and it feels almost hopeless, desperate. The kids love you. I had my camera with me, and all they want to do is take photos and see you see you themselves in the camera and that sort of thing and it was it was hard but kind of easy because the next thing we did 
was we walked out with undercover armed police officers because white people are just a target, basically, and into the slums, right into the thick of it. We stepped over feces. We stepped over open drains into their tiny, tiny, tiny little homes. They were pitch black or with just a tiny little bit of candlelight. And we had the immense privilege of seeing someone who sponsored a child in this area meet their sponsored child. It was, it was amazing. But you know what? We left that place. We went back to a hotel and we left it all behind. And we just couldn't really handle it. I remember saying to Katie... I can't go back tomorrow knowing that tomorrow we're going to be doing the same thing again. It's too hopeless. There's no hope. There's no way these kids can get out of this. There's no hope. Thinking maybe I'll pretend I'm ill or something like that. But anyway, next day, we got back in the bus. We went back to the same slum but to a different project. And this project had seen thousands of children go through the work of compassion. And not only do they go through compassion, but they come at the other side with an education with the ability to get out of the slum and to live a totally restored life. And not only that, they know Jesus. And he is their saviour, he is their provider, and he is their hope. It's amazing. Anyway, we come home and, you know, you're back in the UK and you think, well, this is great, it's a bit of a weird, you have this whole culture shock thing. And we look around and we think, we don't deserve this. We have a real sense of entitlement. We think, I deserve this. If the service isn't right in a restaurant, I deserve this. This is wrong. Blah, blah, blah. We don't deserve anything. These kids have absolutely nothing. And yet in here, because we were born in the UK and we weren't born there, we think we deserve this. But it's not true. I don't deserve a nice house. I don't deserve a nice car. I don't deserve nice clothes. I don't even deserve oxygen. But here's the cool thing. Jesus died and took away all our sin, all our shame, all our pain, so that we could know him and have grace for it. Grace that means that we are able to live a full life, a great life, with hope. And these kids that have nothing have hope because they have Jesus and they're able to get out of the situation. Even in hardship in the UK, even in trouble, we still have an amazing life. And David knew that. He said clearly in this psalm, he knew God's judgment was fair because we don't deserve this. He knew we have violated God and that we've messed up. But, and it's a really great but, he sees it all and he still loves us. The psalm says, he scrubs us in his laundry and we come out clean. The worst place to possibly be is out of God's plan for our lives. I've never been a particular rebel. I've never really walked away from church or done anything like that. But around five or six years ago, I was studying music and Bible college, and I got myself into a relationship. It was fun. It was exciting. It was my first grown-up relationship. But it wasn't really the right thing for me to do at the time. My girlfriend at the time had only just become a Christian. I met her in September, October time, and only weeks before coming, she had been sleeping around and was scared that she was pregnant. Thankfully, she wasn't. But the alarm bells were there, and I ignored them. 
I didn't tell my parents. I didn't tell my closest friends. I didn't tell anyone. I wasn't wise. She had a history of anxiety and depression, genuine conditions that need proper treatment and attention. But me, Josh, I thought I was the superhero. I thought I was going to be the problem to fix all her needs and all her problems. But that's not my job. That's not who I am. I remember one time coming round to her house and finding her in her room having drunk two bottles of wine. She was completely drunk. I had no idea what to do. So I thought to myself, uh, what can I do? Uh, she needs to get out of this situation. Picked her up as well as I could, dragged her to my housemates, my poor housemates. They must have thought, what is going on? And eventually she fell asleep and all was fine. But it doesn't end there. She had a saviour already, and that name was Jesus. It wasn't me. A few months later, I moved back to Cambridge at the end of the course, and she stayed on for a second year. Things having improved greatly over time. And um, in her second year, she lived with a girl who was exactly like her in the first year, but probably two times as bad. But because of the healing and the restoration of God in her life, she was able to help this girl and able to help her move on. Anyway, carrying on, we decided that we needed to go on a break. And anyone that's gone on a break realizes that that's just a wimp's way of saying we need to end this relationship without actually doing it. So a couple of months tick over, and then we go, actually, let's break up. She carried on and she completed the second year of Nexus, realized her identity as a follower of Christ, saved by the blood of the Lamb, and has since moved on with her life. Me, on the other hand, I've stepped right into God's call on my life. I've married the right woman, the greatest woman. I'm doing the, the best job in the world for me, and I'm serving in the greatest church I could possibly imagine. I might be slightly biased, but I believe it's true. <laughs> I can honestly say that However I may have slipped out of God's plans and purposes for my life, there may have been consequences I've never realised, but now I know I'm living in God's direct call and plan for my life. I know he accepts me and loves me for who I am and not what I do. He has washed away any wrongdoing, any sin or anything that I could possibly do. And I would say if you're in a relationship or if you've got friends or anything and you know that you're looking for a saviour or you're trying to be a saviour, you're looking in the wrong place. You need to look elsewhere because you don't need a saviour with a little s. You need a saviour with your big S. And that saviour is Jesus. He is all you need. He is your hope, your comfort, your provider, your healer, your peace, and your joy. He will sustain you and get you through anything you need. My final point, number three, is that real worship costs. What does that mean? Well, let's be honest for a moment. We all get bored of worship. Why? Because we're all guilty of a too narrow-minded view of what we believe worship is. We think worship is just singing songs. But we know it isn't. We just forget. When we reduce down worship to simply a musical expression and a blind singing of songs, it becomes a meaningless noise to our God. 
David expresses this in the end of the psalm. Going through the motions doesn't please you. A flawless performance is nothing to you. I learned God worship when my pride was shattered. Heart shattered lives ready for love. Don't for a moment escape God's notice. Make Zion the place you delight in. Repair Jerusalem's broken down walls. Then you'll get real worship from us. Acts of worship, small and large, including all the balls that you can heave onto your altar. I wonder if the band would come up. Going through the motions doesn't please God. Going through the motions doesn't please God. Don't do it. The first time we see worship in the Bible is right in the beginning, in Genesis. Abraham takes his son Isaac right up with him to sacrifice him. Sacrifice. But don't worry, God was testing him. He was testing his heart because heart is key. God provided a ram just in the last minute and it was all okay. He was looking for a heart prepared to sacrifice. And what does it mean? The first time we see worship, it is directly linked to sacrifice. So I suggest worship means being prepared to sacrifice. Maybe it means sacrificing your pride. Maybe it means raising your hand for the first time if you've never done it before. Maybe it means unfolding your arms. Or maybe it means opening your mouth and singing for the very first time. Surely if you believe in the God of gods and the King of kings and the Lord of lords, then the least you can do is raise your hand in worship, sing to him, praise to him. It's not about us, it's totally all about him. God's highest desire is a heart, a soft heart that is broken broken for him, prepared to raise up your voice in song, prepared to stand up for your beliefs in a workplace that is dark, prepared to stand up and be salt and light in the world. This world is a dark world. We've faced many things, but we have a hope. We have Jesus beyond all things we need. We have Jesus. About one week ago, we were having our worship team night. It was ridiculously hot, particularly for England. And it's one of those days where you think, I can't really focus on anything I'm doing because it's just too hot. And it'd been one of those crazy days where you feel like you're going from one thing to another and, it's, and you don't really know what to do with yourself. And I got there to the worship night and I was stood there and it hit me. I'm bored. And it was nothing about these guys. These guys were great. They weren't doing anything wrong. Their hearts were right. It was my heart that was wrong. My heart had hardened and I'd been struck by a hardened heart. And then the song Ever Be came on and they were singing, your praise will ever be on my lips. Your praise will ever be on my lips. I will sing you praise. And I'm like, praise, 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 praise. And then I thought, I get to praise the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords no matter what. I get to praise the God of the gods, the Lord of the Lords, the one who created the universe, the one who is the beginning and the end. My little voice, my little song, my little plea to God goes to Him and gives Him glory and honour and all I need to do is soften my heart. That is the greatest privilege that I could partake in and the greatest honour. My dad has always said that bored... Hang on, let's get this right. If you're bored, it's because you're boring. That echoes in my mind. 
And it was true. I'd become boring. It wasn't anyone else. It wasn't God. God's not boring. It was me. I'd become hard-hearted and boring. And I realized I need to offer up my heart. I need to sacrifice and repent in that moment. And you know what? As soon as I did, his presence was thick. I had a revelation of what Jesus is. And it was like engaging in a new way, a new dimension, in a way that I'd never experienced God before. How do we respond to this? Well, I can only think of one way. We need to worship. And we need to pray for forgiveness. Because Jesus loves us. I don't know how often you remember the cross cross that Jesus freely gave his life on but there's nothing else like it you know we get to live in grace we get to live in freedom and we live in the aftermath of Jesus dying on the cross coming back living a life we can access him we can know him we can know the one who is the creator the one who is the author of all things right now I want to offer up a response I want to make it really clear in here that we all know that we've fallen short. We all know that we've sinned. Like David said in his his psalm, he was far from God. If you're feeling that you're far from God or that you've done wrong, you've made mistakes and you want somehow to express something of the anguish of what David was experiencing and say, God, I want to know you again. Lord, forgive me. I want to make an appeal right now for forgiveness people feel like they've made a mistake, they need forgiveness, then I'm going to provide a moment in just a couple seconds time for you to respond. If everyone would be willing to bow their heads and close their eyes. If you'd like me to pray for you as this response for forgiveness, then please would you raise your hand with me and I'll include you in this prayer. Lord Jesus, I thank you that whatever we do or have done in life, that you love us no matter what. I thank you that your son came down to die for us so that we may have life and eternity with you and that you have washed away our sin, our debts, and you have made us free. I pray that you would forgive us for when we fall short and that we would live lives devoted to you with an open, soft-heartedness that gives you all the glory and all the praise. And in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Right now we're going to sing a song. He's going to talk about the greatness of God. No other name. And I think as we stand here in this room, the best thing to do right now would be to respond in a bold way, in a passionate way, that says, hey, I'm going to lift my hand if I've never lifted my hand for the first time in worship. Hey, I'm going to unfold my arms. Hey, I'm going to sing songs. I'm going to be bold Lord there is, there is no point in worshipping Jesus and being passionless there's no point in having a heart that is heartened and says no it's about me I'm not raising my hands it's about him it's about Jesus let's sing loudly because he truly deserves all our praise all the honour and all the glory come on let's stand